Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus and His People, with a message entitled, The Greatest of These is Love. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 15, verses 9 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Some of you who are older, you might remember the year 1991. That was the year that communism collapsed in Eastern Europe and the year the Berlin Wall came down and the year the world was changed. You might also remember that Romania was then one of the worst of the communist nations. It was soon discovered that Romania was filled with some of the worst orphanages the world had ever seen. You know, I had the experience of visiting one of those orphanages and what I saw has never left me. I was in a room alone with a young boy. It was almost impossible to judge his age. He was so malnourished that he had not developed in the way in which normal children do. And I came to realize that he had almost never been touched. No one had ever shown him even the slightest degree of love. You know, if the communist and socialist way of thinking was right, the state takes care of everyone, but the state doesn't love. So this boy was never held. No mother had ever sung to him and sung him to sleep. No one had ever listened to him communicate. I sat alone in the room with that boy. He was rocking back and forth, hugging his knees as his arms were wrapped around them all the way up to his chest. He spoke not a word. He just continued to rock back and forth. We sat there for a great deal of time, and then I thought, you know, I'm going to reach out and touch his hand and communicate that there's someone who's moved by his plight. And as I reached out my hand, he screamed like a wild animal. And I was shocked and I, I withdrew my hand and he drew his knees tighter into his chest and he went on rocking and making this hopeless noise. You know, he seemed less than human, although he is created in God's image. Now, love is essential to the human condition. If we're not loved, we can't develop. We're dependent on love. You know, of all the horrifying things that can happen to a human being, to live without love is the most horrifying of all. My experience in that orphanage still haunts me. What did become of that young boy? Well, love is also essential to knowing we're secure. In our study of John 15 to 17, we've noted that these important chapters in our Bible occur at a time when, at least from the disciples' perspective, it, it must have seemed like the world was falling apart. They had expected Jesus to arrive in Jerusalem and then to be coronated as Messiah and King. And from there, they expected the kingdom of God to arrive. Initially, at least, in terms of Jesus' triumphant ride into Jerusalem, what we now know is Palm Sunday, well, it seemed like their hopes and dreams were being fulfilled, but very quickly things became hostile. And then as they celebrated Passover, Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood shed for you. And that was unsettling. And then, one of you will betray me. And then, I'm leaving you now. And where I'm going, you can't immediately come. So dark clouds were gathering. And it seemed like the band of disciples was in danger of breaking up. And was Jesus divorcing himself from them? And of course, he was not. John 13, verse 1, which is the beginning of that night of the celebration of Passover, begins with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And John, who is there, and saw what happened, writes, that in that act, Jesus loved them to the end. Let's make application to our own lives, shall we? You know, I began this series by speaking about the matter of endurance. How can any of us know that since God demands that we be faithful to the end, that we will be faithful to the end? 
But in this section we're about to study, we're going to find that we can be faithful for he who commanded us to be faithful is the very one who loves us. The commands are surrounded by assurances of love. Indeed, if we go back to John 14, 18, we hear Jesus reassuring words to his frightened disciples. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. And my mind is taken back to that destitute orphan I met in Romania, untouched, unloved, not spoken to, not cared for. Jesus is promising his disciples that as things get tough, there's a cross ahead, and after that, they're going to be given marching orders to preach the gospel to all nations, and then that all men will hate them. Will they fall away? No, they were loved. They're not left as orphans. Indeed, that's what God promises us as well. He will not leave us as orphans. We will not live out our lives as Christians simply trying to keep the commands of God. We are not left as orphans. We are loved. So with that assurance, we begin with John 15, verse 9. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now, of course, in some ways you might say, you know, the Father's love for Jesus, well, that's different than Jesus' love for us. But that doesn't change anything that Jesus has just said here. You know, in John 17, 24, we're told that the Father loved the Son from before the foundation of the world. So there's an eternal love relationship that's always existed between the Father and the Son. There never was a time in which the Son was not the object of the full delight of his Father. And so we might say, well, we can't be loved like that. We're just finite beings. And of course we are. But we also know that Scripture teaches that, for instance, in Ephesians 1.4, you're chosen by the Father from before the foundations of the world. Now, we're not eternal, but God already, through his Son, set his affection on us before the world began. Well, how else does the Father love the Son? Well, according to John 3.35, Jesus said the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That is, the Father has given the Son authority over everything in love. Well, has Jesus done that for us? Well, surely that is his eternal promise. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Indeed, we're promised in Revelation 5.10 that we will reign forever with Christ. Jesus intends to make us joint heirs with him over everything. Well, how else did the Father love the Son? John 10, 17 records Jesus as saying, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus has been given the unique authority to lay down his life at the Father's command and also at the Father's command to take it up again. That's the nature of the authority that the Father entrusted into the Son. And for us, Is it not true that we will rise with the Son, for our life is hidden in Him? See, there's an unbreakable bond of love between the Father and the Son, and we're now assured that Jesus is saying there is an unbreakable bond between Him and us. You are the object of the Son's delight. You're in the eternal plans of the Son. The Son has interest in you, not just for a moment, but for all of eternity. His love for you is unbreakable. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. And with the assurance of that, love comes a command. Therefore, since that's so, abide in my love, remain in my love. Don't be estranged from my love. 
Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See, this latter part of the verse is often missing from our minds. You know, Jesus kept the Father's commands. You know, some Christians don't understand it. They know that the Father and the Son are co-equal from all eternity. Now, how then does the Son submit to the Father? And part of the secret of knowing how that's so is because submission does not mean that the one submitting is inferior to the one to whom he submits. You know, think about that. The Son being fully equal, voluntarily submitted to the will of the Father and became obedient to him even to death on a cross. Now, we are in no way equal to Jesus. He is, yeah, truly man, but he is also truly God, truly and eternally God. He is creator, we're creature. If then the the creator submitted to his father out of love, how then we, the creature, who owe our existence to him as well as that we owe our redemption to him, how then can we not submit to this one who loves us? Indeed, note verse 10 very carefully. If you keep my commandments, you'll remain in my love. Or to put it another way, this is how you remain in my love. Obey me. Now, by the way, there's a very simple definition of conversion here. Once we went our own way deciding what was right for us, but then we came to Christ and we surrendered our lives into his hands. We surrendered our lifestyle choices into his hands. You know, we once thought that we knew what was best in all our relationship choices. But now, just like Jesus in the garden, praying to the Father, we now pray, not my will, but thine be done. When it comes to sexual choices, not my will, but thine be done. When it comes to how I spend and deal with money, not my will, but thine be done. When it comes to how I relate to people, not my will, but thine be done. And how I respond to those who spitefully abuse me, not my will, but thine be done. When it comes to how I will spend my retirement, not my will, but thine be done. In everything I do, I scour the scriptures looking for the command of Christ and then embrace it saying, not my will, but thine be done. In this way, I remain in his love. Make that your commitment. Hey, have you heard? Our free kids mobile game app, Bible ABCs for Kids, has some great new updates making it easier for you to enjoy time with your children as they dive deeper into God's Word. Let your child enjoy tracing uppercase and lowercase letters while animated friends cheer them on. With the added feature of descriptive poems to help your kids better understand the Bible. Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. In a time where most learning is happening online, Bible ABCs for Kids helps our children continue to grow spiritually and in their understanding of God and His unconditional love for each of us. Download the updated version of Bible ABCs for Kids from the App Store and Google Play Store today. Or for more information, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Hey! 
having set the stage for remaining in his love, that the, you know, the relationship of love that we maintain with Jesus is one of submission and obedience, suddenly we find out that this relationship will not be one of drudgery. And I say that because when some people think of submitting to Christ, they imagine, look, that's going to be a joy sucker. You know what I mean? All that now enters into some people's minds is, I'm going to be prevented from doing those things that bring happiness. So we imagine a killjoy Puritan standing over us. No, you can't do that. Oh, no, you can't do that either. And soon the world becomes gray. It's just drudgery. It's doing duty. You know, a great many people can't imagine that the words, keep my commandments and so remain in my love, is anything but negative. And so with that possible misunderstanding, let's read the next three verses, shall we? John 15, 11 to 13. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. So we notice that Jesus is speaking about his joy. So think about the disciples that were gathered around him that night. They knew that Jesus was filled with joy. That reality had not escaped them. Now to us, who are reading it 2,000 years later, we might wonder if that should be the case. I mean, after all, you know, when Isaiah the prophet was predicting the life of the Messiah, he said he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And I know that in my own study of the life of Jesus, I've often wondered about how severe his temptations became. We know of his temptations at the outset of his ministry. You know, after 40 days of fasting, the devil comes to him and he offers to give him all the kingdoms of this world and all their glory, and he refuses. He would rather than taking the fast track to fame and riches, rather than doing that, he would submit himself to the will of his father, and he would conquer the world through suffering and dying, and thereby he would secure a people to himself. It does seem like the sky went from, you know, sunny to gray, the very thick black storm clouds are rising, and by the time we get to Gethsemane, he's sweating drops of blood as the, as the cup of suffering under the wrath of God is given for him to drink. I mean, truly, whether it was resisting temptation or bearing up under the slander of his opponents or seeing a crowd follow him only for the sake of seeing miracles and then very quickly deserting him, and then all the way up to the cross, I think it's fair to see Jesus as a man of sorrows and speak of him in terms of his suffering. So where's joy in that? And yet Jesus is confident that the disciples have seen his joy. What have they seen? Let me suggest a little example. You know, I have in my ministry met some fabulously wealthy people who have never had to deny themselves of anything nicest houses and cars. You know, they can take time off and decide for themselves how long that time is going to be. They can travel anywhere and stay anywhere they want. But here's what I also have noticed about some of them. They lack purpose. You know, I'll put it plainly. Without something to die for, they have nothing to live for. A life of leisure and pleasure leads to a deep unsettledness, an ache that it's all for nothing. You know, many years ago, a famous singer in her time, a woman named Peggy Lee, saying, is that all there is? Is that all there is? And if it is, she's saying, let's then just break out the booze and have a ball. 
You know, she sang of anesthetizing the inner pain that her interior life was collapsing and her personal darkness was increasing. You know, in contrast to that, consider Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says of him who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. That is, he endured the suffering because he saw eternal joy. Or listen to the vision that Isaiah the prophet saw. Isaiah 25, 8 and 9 says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Indeed, every vision of the age to come is a vision that explodes with joy. So let's say a few words about joy. C.S. Lewis thought that whenever we make joy or happiness, the goal of our lives, we're going to find out that we'll never achieve joy at all. Hedonism, that is, the pursuit of pleasure, always leads to an absence of joy. You don't achieve joy by seeking it, said Lewis. So listen to what he said. He said, it is a byproduct. Its very existence presupposes that you desire not it, but something else. And I think Lewis was exactly right. The Bible doesn't tell us to seek joy on its own. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to have joy. We do want joy. We were made for joy. The thing is, however, you don't get it by looking for it. Listen to Psalm 64, verse 10. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord. Take refuge in him. Let all the upright of heart exalt. In other words, as we see God and as we find him through faith and submission, through prayer and contemplation, through learning his ways. And as we do all of that, we find joy, lasting, eternal. We didn't find joy by seeking pleasure. We found it by seeking God. And Jesus was full of joy, even in his sufferings. That's because in his submission to his Father, he was finding in his Father a pleasure, a happiness, an inner exaltation. It was a joy that his disciples saw. And that's what he meant when he said that my joy might be in you. I mean, never was there a man so filled with pleasure and joy and celebration and deep abiding happiness than Jesus. And now he says to his disciples, I want you to experience what I experienced. And because they had been close to him, how they wanted it as well. So how do we experience joy? I'm thinking about many whose lives are empty. I mean, why do you want to emulate a life that's filled with sadness and purposelessness or restlessness, that the life that they wanted was beyond their grasp? Why would it be that in our culture, where we constantly hear voices telling us, make your own rules, don't let anyone else tell you what to do, and yet we see in those very people an absence of purpose and joy? Why wouldn't you rather want the joy of Jesus, the same joy he experienced? Notice what Jesus does next. He's making the point that true joy consists in laying down our desires and submitting our desires to God, becoming obedient to him in everything. Indeed, he says to his disciples, they are to submit to him, obey my commands. But where do we begin? Notice he says, love one another. But of course, as we all know, love is difficult to define. And Jesus helps us. Love one another, he says, as I have loved you. 
And should we ask, which incident in the life of Jesus shows us his love best? It's this. Greater love has no one than he lay down his life for his friends. You know, it needs to be said that Jesus' command here adds something to the love that we find in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So no grudges, no revenge. Rather, love others as you love yourself. And if you don't know what that means, Paul in Ephesians 5.29 tells us, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. That's to say, when we get up, we make sure that we put on clothing, we eat, we brush our teeth. You know, we care for ourselves. Well, do that also for others. Care for them. When your brother is hungry, feed him. But Jesus goes further. Don't think any sacrifice that you make for your brothers and sisters in Christ is too great. That's what Jesus did in relationship to us. He laid down his life for us. You know, it's a mouthful, and it's hardly ever practiced. But all the indications are that the disciples loved each other just that way. Think it no imposition to extend yourself for a brother and sister. Be known for your sacrificial acts of grace to each other. Be like Jesus. Love as he has, and you'll find out you'll have more joy than you had ever imagined. Now let's go to the last four verses. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you that you should love one another. May it never be said of Christians that we're thrashing around at one another. May it always be said that we have obeyed Christ's first command and through loving one another, we have found joy. Thanks so much, John. If I could just ask you to comment on this, it would seem to me that there is no true joy outside of our love for others. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, of course, uh, momentary fleeting pleasures that people have all the time, but it always goes away and it leaves us with this gnawing emptiness. It is not until we learn how to love like Jesus, to give ourselves up for others, that we begin to find that our life begins to make sense and we have this deep abiding contentment that is wrought by the Holy Spirit. And this satisfaction in our life is what true joy is all about. So yes, we must love others as Christ loved us. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus and His People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. These efforts have helped transform the lives of thousands of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. You know, whatever stage of life you're in, you've probably considered the impact you want to leave on your family, on your community, or in the world. Providing sustainable support to the Back to the Bible Canada ministry is one key way you can have an impact on the lives of thousands. We have a goal of adding 331 new monthly givers to our new monthly partner program, the 1119 Fellowship. 
Won't you help us reach that goal and ensure the message of God's Word continues to transform lives? To learn more about the program, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship.